want to direct your attention to Psalm 139 today. First 16 verses will be our text. Familiar passage, familiar psalm, but one that the Lord has directed our heart to. This past week, the Lord put this thought in my heart, and at the time didn't really expect to be speaking on it today. It was just, just you know, God gives you thoughts every now and then, and and it was one that stuck with me, and I've been rolling around in my mind for the past number of days, and and sure enough, as we prayed for the Lord's will for this message, this is where He has sent us, and I pray that you would, uh, again, give your mind and your heart and your attention to God as we read together Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul I know it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. In this passage, as David is trying to express, or the psalmist is trying to express, is full of such majesty and thoughts of such marvelous nature, he simply says, I can't attain it. I can't hold it. I can't reach to that height. I want to speak to you a little bit about these things today as much as I can and as the Lord will help. And I want to start by asking you a question. And the psalmist has answered the question. But the question that maybe you've not considered before, it's not one that you hear very often, but where were you the instant before you were you? Where were you? Where were you before you became a living being? Where were you? What were you doing? There, there is, that is a question that can only be answered 
in God. And the psalmist answers it. There was a moment when you were not. You didn't exist. You were not, and yet you were, according to this passage and and others, you were in the mind of God. He knew he was going to call you from nothing into existence. He knew he was going to give you life. There was a moment that you weren't. And then there was a moment that you were because of God. I've been reading even of late and and looking into some things about life itself. And, you know, science itself doesn't really have an explanation for this thing called life. What is it? What makes us what and who we are? We can talk about the equations, we can talk about the chemicals, we can talk about the sun, and we can talk about all the physical properties of this life, of this world, but how is it and what is it for you to be you, to be alive? What makes you different from the trees and the animals? What makes you and I different is that we've been made in the image of God. And before even we were brought forth, God knew he was going to do it. And and David said, when I was being woven, intricately woven in my mother's womb, God, you were the one doing it. You were the one seeing to it that that happened. There's a great amount of clarity that comes from understanding that our days here are numbered. Great amount of clarity. It'll cut through a lot of the things that distract us in our life to remember that we have a certain number of days in this life and no more. But I find it interesting the way the psalmist said it here. It's not that we were formed for the days of our life. God formed the days for our life. It's the other way around. But not only is there a lot of in, of of clarity to be gained by understanding that there are only a certain number of days that we have here, there's greater clarity still, I think, in understanding where our days came from. To know that it was God who in an instant called you forth. The very first verse of the Bible says, in the beginning, God created. Did you know that everybody here in this room and you today and all of mankind can say the same thing about themselves? In the beginning, in my beginning, God created. It's the only thing that ultimately makes any logical sense to be truthful with you. It's the only thing that will put us in a position of understanding what this life is really about But in man's search for the truth today, and this goes in cycles, by the way, you read enough history, men will go from one thing to another. Today, we are obsessed with the material, the measurable. Put it into a test tube. Put it in and examine it and begin to understand that if I can't examine it or understand it with my eyes or feel it with my hands or measure it in some way, then it's not real. In man's search for the truth today, he has forgotten and we have forgotten as a society that truth goes far beyond the material world. Far deeper than that. Life is not a math equation. Life is not a chemistry set. Life is not something that we can just measure and and science attempts, though, to convince our minds to the point 
convince our minds so strongly to the point that we forget our hearts. That's how Satan wins a lot of battles today, is he tries to separate your mind from your heart. He tries to make you think that these are two separate things, and they are not. I am as concerned about looking at the world through the lens of logic and reason as anyone. Perhaps guilty too much on that side of the pendulum. I think God has created us rational thinking creatures. And I think he has shown us a world of order and purpose and sense. And he wants us to figure out that order. And he wants our lives to be orderly. So I am on board with being thoughtful and reasoned and rational and thinking. And I do not believe that faith in God requires me to dismiss my mind and my intelligence. In fact, my faith in God leads to greater thoughts about Him and the world. And it opens up truth. It doesn't close it off. These are not at odds with one another. But science has tried to convince us that our lives are nothing more than a chemistry set or a math equation and to put it on a, a whiteboard. But life is more than that and you know it. You know it deep down. You do. I believe you do. I know there are people that will argue with me and have. I'm an agnostic. I'm an atheist. No, you're not. (laughs) No, you're not. There is something inside of you that God placed there and you know. And I beg you to listen to that inner voice that is telling you the truth of the situation that life is more than what we see. And so again, I am as concerned as anyone about being rational and thoughtful. But you see, again, life is not a math problem. It's far more than that. It isn't less, but it is more. There is more to it than that. Life is not a logic problem. It's not just merely a pattern. God is a God, as we've said, of logic and order, but He is also a God of love and compassion And how do you quantify that? How do you quantify love? How does the material world match up to this thing called love? It doesn't. And I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, if this world does not satisfy me, then I can only conclude, and this is not a direct quote, but he said, I can only conclude that I must have been made for another world. There's more to it. Where were you before you were you? You were in the mind of God. And then one day for me, some nine months before January 11, 1973, I came into being. Why? Something I did? Of course not. In in my beginning, God created. And so too for you. And you see, there's a thing about what God creates in the human being. The image of God, I had a beginning. I will not have an ending. I will not. I will exist. One of two realities, life and peace and joy with God in heaven, or darkness and separation and lostness and destruction in hell. I know that is not popular. It never probably has been. But I do believe that lack of a fear of God 
and the fear of what it is to stand before him has led to a lot of complacency that has led us create a lot of first world problems that really aren't problems at all to avoid and to distract us from the real problem that we all face, which is one day we're going to stand before the God who in our beginning made us, created us, and then he calls us to do some things. And if this is true, and again, I want to tell you, you know, I believe there's something inside you that you know this. Having this image of God, you're more than matter. You are more than chemicals. You're more than organic matter. You are more than the electrical signals that fire in your brain. There is something more fundamental still to all of that, and that is God. And our awareness of Him, I believe most will acknowledge this truth truly if you really drill down, and certainly anyone who claims to be a believer, that God created them. There is within the mind and heart of man and men and women this awareness that there's something greater than ourselves, something more. Something more fulfilling than all the money in the world. More fulfilling than any job I could ever have. More fulfilling than any human relationship that I can have. As deep and as wonderful as those can be. I believe most will acknowledge this, but the truth of this reality that in my beginning God created brings us face to face with Him. In order for there to have been a beginning There had to be a beginner. That's as simple and logical as it can be. And for you to have, if you say you had a beginning, and of course you must, then there must have been a beginner. And it brings us straight into the face of God. So here you are. And I pray, and I know that we could spend our lives talking about what I just spoke about, the existence of God. At this point, I'm going to take that as an assumption. I know it's true. I'm going to take it as an assumption that we all come to this reality with. And what I want to talk to you today about, if this is true, why did he do it? And there's two questions, and this is the title. It took me a while to get here, but it, what is this? And this is the thought that God placed on my heart and he wants to share today, I believe, with you. What does God want from me? And what does God want for me? If God called me from nothing and he gave Kent Welch life, and to this point, some 48 and a half years later, I'm still here, what is it that he wants from me? If God called you from nothing into existence, and he did, what does he want from you? What does God want from you? Why did he give you life? What is his purpose? Why did he bring you, and I mean you individually? Isn't it amazing there are billions of us and there's not two of us just quite alike? That's incredible. Incredible. Why did he call you? Why did he give you Life. What does he want from you? Lucky for us, he's told us. We don't have to guess. Not not really. What do you think God wants from you? What do you think God wants for you? Now, if your answers to these questions are based on your own ideas and your own thoughts, they, they will be mistaken. Because I can tell you this, the prosperity preacher loves to answer the question, what does God want for you? 
and then fill in the, he wants you to have the three car garage and the great job and the great wife and the money in the bank and all these wonderful things. And he'll smile with his white teeth and his perfect hair. And, and as, as he gets on his jet and flies from place to place and makes his millions, he's got all kinds of wonderful things to tell you that God wants for you. He'll rarely really talk about what God wants from you. And you can't talk about what God wants for you without talking about what God wants from you. You can't. To understand the second, you've got to first understand the first. What does God want from you? And then, by the way, you've got the opposite of the prosperity preacher. Maybe we'll call them, I don't know, hard shell, however you want to call it, a fundamentalist, whatever your word for it is. We have people today who say God is a God of terror and he just wants you to obey. And he's this God who will strike you with lightning if you don't do what he says to do. And he doesn't ever think about or tell you what God wants for you. He just talks about what he wants from you. But these are inextricably tied together. Inextricably tied together. Yes, he wants some things from you. And we're going to talk about just a handful of them. But let's look at what the Word of God says. And let's just agree, I hope, to say, let's let God answer this question. Let's not let the prosperity preacher or the hard shell preacher answer the question. Let's let God answer the question. What does God want from you? Well, it's pretty clear in the scripture. First of all, he wants repentance. John the Baptist began preaching that. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus himself preaching in Mark, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 4. From that time, Jesus began to preach in verse 17 saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We could spend all day quoting passage after passage of the direct call that God has given to man to repent, as well as the great, the direct application and examples when man had an opportunity to do it and didn't. And I think our nation is on the precipice here of a of choice to make. Repent. Turn back to God or face the due penalty of not doing so. What does God want from you? First, he wants repentance. Why? Because we're sinful. And and I don't have to convince you you're a sinner. I don't have to waste any time convincing you. You know it. And, and I don't have to convince you that nobody made you that. You chose it. You were shapen, formed, and you came forth in iniquity from our first parents, but you have chosen, and we are all sinners. The Bible declares it. Paul removes from the religious uh, uh, zealot to the pagan. He removes from them any sense of righteousness in themselves. And if that's true, then we must repent. God wants you to repent. That's the first thing. What does he want from you? He wants you to repent. Ask God for forgiveness for the sin that is that is in you. I remember that's what hit me first. And I've shared my testimony many times. I was a good little boy by the estimation of the world. Lived in this little bitty town in Mount Vernon, Missouri. Got into a little bit of trouble here and there. I remember going to Baptist Hill camp one time and me and a couple of friends, the bus had a problem. We were outside and we thought we'd throw stones at a stop sign, having a great old time. A week later, I come home and what's the first thing out of my mom's mouth? Why were you throwing rocks at that sign? That was trouble, but that was a pretty good kid. 
But I remember another year at Baptist Hill Campground, 11 years old, and a preacher preaching and preaching on John 3.16, and then all of a sudden, oh, I'm, I'm lost. I'm lost. I don't know him. And I repented with the help of the Holy Spirit, but in a full submission. There was no God, I'm a sinner, but... There was no but about it. It was an owning and an acknowledgement of the fact that I was a sinner and that apart from God, I had no hope here or in eternity. And I knew that my home was hell at that point because of my sin. And so God calls, what does he want from us? Number one, he wants repentance. Number two, he wants faith. Other words, trust, belief. Hebrews 11.6, that very familiar passage, we even heard it quoted Thursday night. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. What does He want from us? He wants faith. He wants us to repent first, and He wants us to have faith. For whoever would draw near to God, the Hebrew writer says, must believe that He exists, and that He is a rewarder of them who diligently seek Him. God wants your faith. God wants you to trust Him. God wants you to believe him. And you know, it may be a little bit like this. Some people might say, why doesn't God just come show himself? Number one, I'd say, is he not? Is that not what Paul said in the first chapter of Romans? The creation is testifying. It's yelling to you about him. It's trying to grab you by the shoulders and shake you and say, where did I come from? And the answer is in the beginning, God. God wants us to repent. He wants us then to believe him, to trust him. It's a little like this. Somebody that's a millionaire, a gazillionaire, has all the money in the world, but he is looking for a real relationship with someone. And so he pretends to not have any money. Why? So that he can find out whether somebody is actually interested in knowing them. It's That's not a perfect analogy, but it's a little bit like that, I think, with God. He wants you to believe him. He wants you, he's giving you a time. Remember, he formed the days, the number of them that you have. And these days, what does he want from you in them? To trust him, to believe him, to acknowledge him, to know, to come to know him. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So first, repentance. Second, faith or trust, belief. And third, he wants you to obey him. What does he want from you? He wants repentance, he wants faith, and he wants obedience. He's told us that. James says it this way in the first chapter, the 22nd verse, be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Certainly not deceiving God. He wants obedience. In the, in the Old Testament, we read that, that obedience was preferred to sacrifice, David said. He wants you to obey him. Do not misunderstand that. Your life is not yours. It can't be. It was given to you. God wants your obedience. And by the way, he wants your obedience even and particularly when it's most difficult to give it. In our world world today, we're really good at getting ourselves off the hook. Saying, well, you know, there was a reason I blew through that stop sign. I'm in a hurry. I'm late for work. Doesn't matter. 
God wants your obedience. He has called you to obey Him. So He wants your obedience. No, no doubt about it. The, the Bible's clear. Fourth, He wants your worship and praise. That's what He wants from you. What does God want from me? He called me into the world. He's made me. He's created me. He wove me in my mother's womb. Why? What does He want from me? Repentance. He wants faith. He wants obedience. And He wants your worship and praise. O kingdoms of the earth, Psalm 68, sing to God, sing praises to the Lord. In Psalm 69, let heaven and earth praise Him, the seas and everything that moves in them. You ever been reading the Psalms and you can just kind of, almost like you're there with David and you can see him just exhorting you? Praise God. Worship Him. Give Him the honor and the praise that is due to Him alone. What does He want from you? Repentance, faith, obedience, worship, praise. And finally, what I want to say He wants from you is love. He wants you to love Him. That's what He wants from you. Let that sink in for a second. God wants you to love Him. And this has been true from the Old Testament to the New. It's not like, because so many people say, well, the Old Testament, God's this God of a lightning bolt. He's going to strike people down. He did. And he will again. And then they say, well, and the God of the New Testament, he's just this God of love and they're, they're incompatible. No. Oh, no. Let me take you all the way back to the Pentateuch. Deuteronomy. You know those books we like to skip? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. What does God say? What does He want from His people? From you? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. If I'd have just put that verse in front of you without quoting the passage, you'd have been convinced I was talking about the New Testament. At least a lot of people would have. That was in Deuteronomy. And of course it's repeated by the Lord Himself and others. In Mark 12, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. What does God want from you? He wants you to love Him. So that's just a handful of things that God wants from you. But what does He want for you? Because this is where everybody wants to start, and it's why I didn't start there. What does He want for you? You can't answer that question without first understanding what he wants from you. Because you might say, some people will say, why does God want those things? Why does God want me to love him more than anything else? That's kind of hard for some people to swallow. They don't like to hear that. They don't like, they don't understand it even. How can God ask me such a thing? And sometimes people will wrestle with, God wants me to obey him. Live my life, and they'll call it my life, and, and obey Him and do what He wants me to do instead of what I want to do? Why does God want that? I thought God just wanted me to be happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise. Why does God want my obedience? Why does He want my love? Why does He want my repentance? Why does He want my faith? Why does He want my obedience? Well, the answer is because of what He wants for you. And this is what God has been trying to teach me over these last few days with this thought. What does God want for me? 
It's tied inextricably to what He wants from me. You will find the answer to what God wants for you by understanding and answering the question, what does God want from me? First of all, I said He wanted repentance. Why does God want your repentance? Why does He want that from you? Listen, He wants you to repent. He wants that from you because He wants forgiveness for you. He wants you to repent so that you can receive from Him forgiveness. He does not want you to wail and cry and, 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 and just be broken just to watch you wail and cry and be broken. He is not a God like that. He is a God who says, come to me and repent because I want to forgive you. I want you to feel what it feels like to be forgiven. I want from you repentance because I want for you forgiveness. But if you withhold from me what I have called from you, I cannot give you what I want for you. This is why God convicts you. This is why God draws you. This is why God lets you feel just a little bit, a smidgen even, of the conviction of sin in our hearts to awaken us enough to say, God, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Because He wants you to know that forgiveness. That's what He wants for you. So that you can know the peace. Have you ever, even in a human relationship, done something wrong to someone you cared about? And you come, to, maybe you didn't do it on purpose. Maybe you did. Either way, the relationship is broken. There's an elephant in the room anytime you're together because you are unwilling to repent and ask for forgiveness. But have you ever finally submitted, swallowed the pride and just said, I'm sorry. And to feel the other person say, thank you, I forgive you. And that elephant is gone. And the relationship is restored. God wants you to repent. He wants that from you. No doubt about it. But He wants you to repent. He wants that from you because He wants to give you forgiveness. That's what he wants. Peter says that he's long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but what? That all should come to repentance. And why? To come to repentance? So that you won't perish. So that forgiveness can be given. And then we said God wants our faith from us. Why does God want that from us? Because God knows that it is only in trusting him and giving him our faith that he can then give us the confidence and the hope and the steadiness to withstand this life and all of its difficulty. To live with confidence and hope in God. That's why he wants our faith. 
Because faith is not blind. It's not a leap in the dark. It's a leap to the light. It is a leap to the one who can hold us. It is a leap to the one that in the midst of all the things that happen in our life, we can hold on to that anchor that is God. In the midst of all the storms and the things that batter us and the things that confound us and the things that confuse us and the things that hurt us and the things that dismiss us or just make us despair, we feel these things, but in the midst of them, and some Sometimes it can feel like it's with the very tips of our fingers is all we can manage. But we are holding on and saying, God, I don't know, but I trust you. I trust you when I don't have any reason externally to trust you. But I know you, God, and I believe in you. God wants your trust because he wants to give you confidence and hope and meaning and a depth of solid steadfastness in the midst of the haymakers of life. To get up off of the mat and say, as Job did, the Lord gave and he took away. Blessed be his name. And to be able to say, God, I'm going to see you one day. Though you slay me, God, I'm going to see you and I'm going to be with you. Why does he want your faith in the times it's most difficult to give it? Because he knows that's the only time that you're going to find the trust and the confidence and the hope of a life that is far surpasses any of the things that this world can give you. God knows that without faith in him, not without trust in him, we will find nothing, capital N, nothing else worthy of our trust. You won't. I always want to ask people sometimes when they balk or they dismiss trust in God and faith in him, I just always want to say, well, what is it exactly you're trusting? And how has it proved out for you so far? What are you holding on to? Because you're holding on to something. We're holding on to the one who is and was and ever will be. Who in the beginning said and then it was and it, and it will be. He wants from us our faith because he wants for us a life of confidence and hope. He wants from us obedience. Why? Because he wants for us a life of purposeful, purposefulness and productivity. God wants your obedience because he wants for you a life of purposefulness and productivity. He wants your life to mean something. It doesn't everybody. Isn't that one of the greatest fears of, of, the, of the human heart? I'm going to spend my life here. I'm going to spend so many decades. I'm going to die and it won't have mattered. God wants your obedience because he knows that in obeying him is the only path to a life of purposefulness and true productivity. My life mattered. It mattered because I obeyed God. My name may be known to no one. And the Bible kind of tells me it's not going to be too long and our names will all be forgotten. But my life mattered because God did something with it. That's why God wants from you your obedience, because he wants for you a life of purposefulness and productivity. Why does God want from you worship and praise? And this is really where the German germ of the thought came and really where I want to figure out how to. I'm going to camp out here for a while. I don't have this fully baked. But why does God want worship and praise from you? 
because he wants you to be happy. He wants you to feel joy. And the only place, the only place to find that safely is in worshiping him. When we laugh together, God, thank you for humor. Thank you for putting in our capacity, even in some of the darkest days of our life, brothers and sisters, at a place to come where we could share and just laugh and hear the laughter. God, in the midst of that terrible night of despair and those terrible days of despair, thank you for those that come around us and cry and, and cry out to you on our behalf. I worship you, God, because of who you are and how you have made us. He wants me to worship him because he wants me to be joyful. He doesn't want me to be somebody with my head bowed and my shoulders hunched and walking through this life. He wants me to, to look up and worship and praise his great and holy name. And in so doing... I'm like David, dancing and embarrassing everybody around him. Couldn't care less. I'm telling you, we're, we're living in days. There's a lot to cry about. Just the other night, I was... You know how grief can do this to you, just out of the blue. Just blubbering like a baby and just crying... And the tears that I just said, God, why so many tears? Why so many tears? And he reminded me, it's not yet time that I'm wiping away your tears. Let those tears do their work. Worship me. Look to me. Trust me. Obey me. And in the midst of it, even then find some joy. And I'm not talking about silly, passing happiness that the world just clutches after. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about joy that opens the eyes wide and the heart wider and the arms wider still and opens all the resources that you have at your disposal to be a blessing to other people because of the blessing God has been to you. He wants you to be joyful. That's why he wants you to worship him. That's why he wants you to praise him. Finally, why does God want our love? Why does he want from us love? That, that thing, love, is... There's no science subject more complicated than that. The theory of relativity, relativity has nothing on the investigation of love. Why does God want our love? Because he wants for you to know him. He wants from you your love because he wants for you to know him. And to know God is to love God. Ever heard about somebody, somebody at work, just a good person, helpful? 
You ever heard about somebody say, well, to know them is to love them? To know candy is to love candy. <laughs> to know Marla is to love Marla. To know all of you is to love you. To know God is to love God. And if you don't love God, I fear you don't know him. That's heavy stuff. That's heavy stuff. And it, it won't pass the smell test to the easy believism of the day and the surface level Christianity that has infested this nation and left us with moral incredibility like we could never have imagined. But to know God is to love him. And if you don't love him, you probably don't know him. And I'm not saying that if you don't obey him all the time, I, I don't obey him all the time. But I love him. I don't feel that love like I should all the time. But I do. And I think of so many that went to their death as martyrs. Given such an easy choice to get out of it. Just, just say the words that I'm telling you to say. I think of Polycarp. Just recant. Just say Jesus isn't the only way. Just say Jesus isn't God. Just say the words. And so many people would say, just say the words. You don't have to mean them. Let me ask you a question. Those of you who have spouses, those of you who have very close friends, those of you who have children, those of you who have parents, that's probably all of us. And somebody came to you, just say you don't love them. You can keep this job if you say you don't love your spouse, you don't love your husband, your wife, your children. How many of you would say those words to keep your job? I hope the number is zero. And if somebody comes to you and they're going to, I'm no prophet, but this nation is going to continue to press the Christian worldview into a corner and they're going to say, just say these words. You can keep your job. How could we dare say, no, I don't. I don't love him. I don't, I don't care enough about him to obey him. I don't believe in him enough to have trust, to have faith in him. Why does God want these things from us? Why does he want from us the things he wants in our life? So many people look at this book and they come to it with this, okay, what's God want me to do? And we should. But he wants us to do those things. He wants these things from us because he wants things for us. He wants us to feel what it is to know him. And as the psalmist began in 139, you've searched me and you've known me. And then he goes on to say, and it dawns on him. Can you imagine, by the way, the first time this thought dawns on you and on the psalmist as he was writing and as he was thinking and contemplating and praying as the Spirit moved on him to go, before I even was, God knew my days. Before any of them even were counted, he had them counted. Before he... Before I ever was, he called me. Why? Because he wants from you now, since the fall, repentance, faith, obedience, worship, and praise, and love. 
And he wants those things because he wants you to be forgiven. He wants you to have confidence in a world that there is no other place to find it. He wants you to live with purposefulness and productivity. He wants you to know him. And he wants you to feel joy as you worship him. Never dismiss and disconnect those two things. It'll keep you on a, on a path to God, I think. If God's dealing with you today, I, I, I ask you to pray. Whatever the Spirit of God is impressing you to do or say, please obey. And know that He wants that obedience because He's got things for you. Don't let that drive it. Don't test Him. There's so many places Satan can go and we just qualify and qualify and qualify. I'm not going to do that. Just obey Him. You'll find the joy of what that is. If we could have a song, let's, let's do that.